uh, Skullboys. The Street Press Podcast with Sean Fraser. For a start, there are not enough white men doing podcasts. I've got to always support that when that comes along. I was talking to a mate today at a baby queue. We didn't cook a baby. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that yeah. was. I just want to thank you. Yeah, no, it was me. He wouldn't shake our hand until he finished putting on his glove. Imagine what he's like during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got you here for the podcast after your big night last oh. night, so I'm stoked with that. I get a thrill knowing that you're doing what you're doing. That's good. Well, I don't know what I'm doing today. We're just sort of just winging it. Did you moon Kylie Minogue? Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Street Press Podcast. My name is Sean Fraser. I hope you've had a great week. It is Wednesday once again. You know what that means. It's Street Press time. Best part of the week. For me, at least. Hopefully, it's yours. You might be here for the first time. This is all about the music industry. We have musicians on. We have band managers on. We have photographers on. Anyone to do with the industry, we'll get them on this podcast. We have a chat. And we let the chat just sort of roll. <laughs> it can go anywhere, these conversations. Uh, and what episode is it, say? Episode 64? Yep, 64. There you go. Today on the show, we've got Kim Scott from the Adelaide band Mark of Kane. They're a punk outfit. We'll talk about the band in a second. Let's just firstly talk about Kim. He is the bassist of the band. Now, this interview may never have happened because just a couple of months ago, Kim got involved in a really, really nasty accident. He was out on his bicycle with a bunch of friends. They were going out on a leisurely ride and he came off. It was a really, really bad crash. He was in hospital for a while. He's had to walk around with this steel frame that is actually the poles have gone right through his body. They've had to put that in to sort of keep him up. So, yeah, I feel kind of honoured that he's done one of his first interviews back here today with me, and and it's good to see him doing well. So things, like I said, could have gone bad. We talk about the crash, and we talk about how close things got to him not being here anymore. We talk about his experience in hospital. We also talk about the tour. The tour obviously had to be rescheduled after the accident had happened, and there is kind of, I suppose, a, a funny moment where uh, Kim's laying down on the uh, on the stretcher, getting put into the ambulance, you know, after this really nasty injury that he suffered out on the road. And <laughs> he's looking up at the sky and he was thinking, oh, there goes the tour. <laughs> so if you ever wanted to challenge his commitment to the band and playing bass, and uh, that's it right there, thinking he was going to miss out on the tour. So like I said, they've rescheduled it. Uh, we talk about the release of Illet Ease on vinyl. So that was their big breakthrough album that uh, released in the in the early 90s. And they'd already dropped a few records up until that point, but it was that record that Henry Rollins helped them with. And once Henry Rollins sort of said, hey, everyone, you should be listening to this punk band in Adelaide, things really started changing for Mark of Cain. More people were turning up to the shows. More people were buying the records. So we talk about Henry's influence on the band. We talk about what it's like to play in a band with your brother, Kim and John. They've been in the band since like 1984. How do they last this long? <laughs> Not only are they always seeing each other in their personal lives, but they're also catching up with each other in the rehearsal room as well and the recording studio. And we talk about the upcoming tour. Hopefully you got some tickets to it. Kim has promised that he will be standing on that stage. What a moment that will be to see him standing back up again. Let's get him on. This is Kim Scott, the bass guitarist from Mark of Cain. Hello, Kim. How are you going? Good, good. How are you doing? Doing well, mate. Um, doing well. And I, I do mean it. How are you going? I'm good. I'm uh, recovering pretty well. The injuries eight weeks after accident are pretty well all healed. Yesterday I had my external fixature frame 
around my pelvis removed in surgery at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. So just a day surgery in and out pretty well. So today I'm frame free at last. That frame was through your body, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. In they kind of they must kind of put screw in kind of dynabolt things in your pelvis and then they screw these big poles through or poles, posts, two three millimeter poles and through an open wound, and then they kind of put some scaffolding on the outside to give it torsional rigidity. It, it was complete pain in the ass, to be honest. Uh, in terms of being able to sit down, lay down, stand, it just it just got in the way of everything. Yeah, and it's good to be able to look at you, and you're looking you're looking healthy because this accident could have been terrible. Could it? Like it could have been life ending. Well, it could have been ending. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate. That, I mean, the other kind of. I think it was paraplegic, quadriplegic, or brain injury because uh, I hit my head pretty bad as well, and a bit of spinal damage. And they put a they put some hardware in my spine as well mm-hmm. to fix that. So yeah, and two rooms down from where I was in the trauma ward, there was a young girl uh, who'd had a cycling accident on the same day. She was quadriplegic and oh. breathing through a tube in her neck. Just a young young girl. So you just think it could have easily yeah. that. You know, I mean, it's it's a matter of millimetres or inches or whatever. And it all happened so quickly. So um, I think that's the end of it for me. And what a what a sort of sad kind of reality, I suppose, when you're in the hospital and you, that, that girl's just... That you're hearing yeah. about that. And every nurse I spoke to said, I said, oh, do you guys ride? Nah, we work in the trauma ward. We've stopped riding either motorcycles or yeah. push bikes. Yeah, they said the, the amount of damage we see here is just enough to make you realise you don't want to get on the road yourself. So... It is sobering, but and you know, and I love riding. I've loved riding for thirty plus years. But uh, this is the seventh incident. This is the worst part. So I think I've pushed my luck. I don't want to test the nine lives theory just yet. So, so there's the bike up for sale. Are you just going to put it on the wall behind you, or? Well, you know, I have got five bikes. You see, and yeah, right. it's n plus one is the number of bikes you're going to have, and n current number of bikes you have is you know you just got to always have one more. Well, my wife always said there's x minus one, which is x is the number I'm going to divorce you at. So <laughs> she, never, she never told me what that number. I haven't sold them yet. A because my wife did offer while I was laid up for eight weeks. And I said, well, I don't want you to sell them for what I told you I paid for. I'd rather I be honest about how much I really paid for these things because they are expensive, aren't they? Stupid expensive. I mean, there's bikes for 20 grand. And you think, man, you can make a car for 20 grand. This is a six kilogram bike with a chain on it, and it's 20 grand. So do you have a after going through this, a newfound respect, I suppose, for the those working in the the medical wards and oh, hell yeah. I, I gotta say, and I was in public health, which um just because you know, I think in South Australia you have a car like an accident on the road, they just take you to a public yep. hospital. I gotta say, and I had one of the best surgeons for trauma, pelvic trauma surgeons, I think they say in the world. He lectures in the US and the US, uh, UK. So to get that through public health is fantastic to have one of the best surgeons for this kind of um, injury. So don't really complain. And and you just think the nurses, mm. I was kind of incapable of doing anything for a good eight days, just laying on my back. So you've got to rely on the nurse to do everything for you. You know, I think they are the um, largely unheralded heroes, really, that do a whole lot of that hard work. Yeah, I think I heard you saying that um, it, on that day or in the days following, you thought about the tour. You were like, oh, no. I was getting loaded into the ambulance, in fact, uh, on site, and I just thought, my God, the tour, it starts like in four weeks' time. I've just fucked up. And my brother was a little, uh, 
he said he'll give me sympathy for a day or two and then he's going to be incensed about the whole impact. <laughs> but no, he was good. And and as it worked out, he got quite sick uh, with a chest infection and as did our drummer for like, it was for three weeks. And I just said, even if I hadn't have had this, we wouldn't have been touring. They said, yeah, exactly. So I think we tried to do this tour in 2020, the pandemic hit. Then we tried to do it in 21 and the pandemic hit again in terms of no venues and no whatever. Then 22, we couldn't get the vinyl pressing done because we've done a re-release of Ill at Ease and that was the hold up. So we said, well, we want to really do the tour with the vinyl. And then this year we said, right, we'll do it in 2023. All good, announced it. And then we kind of said, let's put it back into the year, let the vinyl plant because we needed about six months for pressing. Got it all sorted. And then this happened. So it's it's almost like when we finally get to the end of this tour, if we haven't all died in a plane crash, I'm going to be really happy. <laughs> It's just like, what the hell, you know? Not meant to be. Yeah, it's like, isn't it? There's there's some sort of thing out there just saying, hey, it's not happening now. All right. For whatever reason, the the world's given us a message. So uh You guys were on a roll with rehearsing, weren't you? We were we were rehearsing a lot. We did two months, I reckon, maybe even three months, sort of June, July, August, and then end of August the accident. So I've had eight weeks no rehearsal. We've got a rehearsal Saturday to see if I can sort of you know, have the weight of the base and stand for that period of time. So we'll play Illidies back-to-back um, in rehearsal, 55-odd minutes, make sure we can we match fit, and then a few songs for the encore, maybe three or four encore songs just to check them out. And if that's good, we're all good to go on the 25th of November, which is the first date uh, in Adelaide, starting in Adelaide and then going on to the East Coast. And, and then the dates we had to move from this month, and a bit of last month, we've shifted into January. So, and um, hopefully, records will be delivered in the first week of November. But we've heard the test pressings; we're loving the sound. It's bigger. It's a bit more bass, snare sound. We fixed the snare sound that we were never happy with. So, usually, when a band will sort of re-release something, they might just get it mastered. But yeah, you guys dug in and, and thought, "Hey, there's a few sounds I don't like." Um, yeah. Let's go back and fix them. Did you actually go and re-record that? No, no, we didn't yeah. do that. I mean, we we did a remastering, and the remastering gives you a bit of flexibility to bring the bass up. And you know, I'm yep. always doing more bass, more bass. Of course. <laughs> finally, finally, I got it. I got it through. Then we just had a snare sound that we weren't really comfortable with on that album. And it was kind of, we used to pick a low snare with a Kevlar skin and Stanier, before he joined us, had told me that that's the sound that he uses for helmet and how he gets it and stuff. So we told Aaron, hey, let's see how we go. We bought a piccolo, um, got the Kevlar head, but for whatever reason, it just didn't, wasn't tuned right and we just weren't happy with it. Even Rollins was never happy with it. He wrote to us yeah, right. um, and said, just really frustrating that that. That snare sound. It's interesting because some fans, I think, like that snare sound, but it sounded like a block of wood getting hit. So it'll be interesting to see how what feedback we get. But the vinyl is fantastic. We've put it in a double album because you kind of want to make sure vinyl has enough groove space to get the dynamic range that you want. So we've kind of limited it to less than 20 minutes per side, which means we have to do three sides, and then yeah. we just put a couple of bonus tracks on the fourth side. So. Never been a better time to release vinyl, isn't it weird? No, no the new, <laughs> the, 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 I don't know how many resurgence we've had, but yeah, there's a big one now with yeah. uh, people wanting vinyl. So yeah, it's um, it's going to be good. Hey, you're talking about artwork. Are you still doing that sort of stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, I it's weird. John John is the creative master. There's no question John is the creative master of the market cane. Always has been. You know, early days we probably jammed a little more, but we're not a jammy man. John's always had that vision of how he wants things to sound. So he's been the creative outlet on that, and he's always left it up to me to do T-shirt design, front cover design, and so forth. So, And I'm a bit of a minimalist anyway. So for me, minimalist design, like Peter Seville for Joy Division, I love that stuff. Yeah, so for me, I just kind of would, and I was, during these eight weeks, I've been going through my shed and going through a whole lot of stuff, and I found all my original hand drawings of what I wanted, how I wanted it done, sent to Ruart. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, if we do another record, I'll definitely probably be involved in the artwork, and even this time around for the um, T-shirts and the merch that we've been designing. I was driving home from work and I had the market cane on. One thing that I was thinking about as I was listening, I was like, wow, these two, they've been, you know, they're they're brothers and they've been in this band since 1984. Now I've got three brothers. I'm one of four. And I was trying to think, could I be in a band with my brother that long? (laughs) (laughs) Have you been able to, you know, do that? Is that the reason the band's been a Well, do you know, know, John, when he started the band, I mean, he started um, the first – instantiation of the Marcane as a different band called Spiral Collapse. And that was with a guy he went through engineering with on bass and a, a guy I think we went through high school with on drums. And that's how he started. Then he kind of approached me. I was probably 18 because he's two years older. And then he said, hey, I want you to play bass in the band. So you know, I, I, I was, I'd played some musical instruments in high school but nothing. And he said, oh, yeah, just pick it up, learn it, you'll be right. So I did. And then we kind of started the Mark Kane. That was the first. And then John took over vocals and so forth. The thing I think we, and John said, longevity of bands that he'd looked at had brothers or siblings in it, right. uh, whether it be the Carpenters or Doobie Brothers, whoever it might, might be. So he said, blood's thicker than water. I reckon let's have you, you and me in the band. So I said, sure. And it's only John and I. There's no other siblings. So, but I think what it means is, you know, a lot of bands, you know, you have different egos in every band. You know, singer's got an ego, drummer's got an ego, whatever. And you go through rehearsals in the hot summer months where you're in a tin shed or you're in some back backyard somewhere or whatever. And I think egos kind of take hold and you have an argument and you fall out. Whereas brothers, as yeah. much as you can fall out with your brother, you're still you're still brothers. That's right. But for me, John growing up was always my musical influence because he was my he was two years older. He was always very influential in the books he was reading, influential in the music he listened to. I mean, he was into Hendrix. I never got into Hendrix, but a lot of the other stuff. And then I started getting into the birthday party and we kind of would swap music and so forth. So we've both complemented each other's taste, him very much more so being the older brother. Mm. And I think that's worked in the band as well because I'm happy to be subservient to his skills, to his knowledge, to his vision of the music and so forth. And I've almost been quality control and he's been the creative outlet. So it's kind of just been synergistic and worked. It's a good point you bring up. If you've got a brother in the band, it's like um, there's something about it. You can have an argument and have the shits with each other for two weeks, but it always comes back and you go, all right, well, I'm sorry for saying this. And Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's when we've had had not not too many bad periods. John and I get on really well. And yeah, yeah, because he's an engineer, I'm an engineer. We kind of think similarly. Weirdly, I was his boss for a period when he uh, was working in a company that I was um, running. So, yeah, so the dynamic changes, you know, in a work sense, at one point I was his boss and then I'd go to band practice and he was the boss. So it's all, all worked out well. 
you said you're both engineers. Is there many punks in the engineering world? <laughs> it's weird, you know, because through John and my work, you kind of find people in the wood come out of the woodwork. And, and I still John doesn't work in defense anymore. He works attorney generals, but I still work in defense. And I'll meet guys and some some guys in uniform, you know, who are kind of senior ranking people in uniform. And then we're kind of I'm doing I'm interviewing them for something and have a review. Something comes up and they go, Kim Scott. Oh yeah. And then we get her out of the band. And then they become fanboys and go, oh Kim Scott. <laughs> I used to listen to you when I was, you know, so it's it's weird. Even in work, we used to find people that came out of the woodwork and go, oh yeah, I'm actually, I didn't want to admit it, but you know, a huge band saw you through uni, whatever. So yeah. It's great. It's great when you find them out in the wild, you know. Even if I'm just at the shops and I just see someone wearing a punk shirt or an old yeah, band, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. you're just like, oh yeah, you're 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 my person. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's kind of, and it's that connectivity, and you kind of, and then you talk. The most common thing is Rollins, you know. Every yeah, a lot of our fans, and it's probably this third album, Illies, that really created with Rollins producing it, created a whole lot more attention to the band that we previously had. So a lot of fans. Yeah, some fans go way back to the early, early days. A lot of fans came from this period of this album. How did Henry sort of find you? How did that all happen? So interestingly, uh, our manager Tim Pittman from Field Presents mm. uh, has a has had a long had a long term relationship over many many years, thirty plus years with Rollins, where he bought the Rollins band out in the very first um, time Rollins ever came to Australia mm. as Rollins band. And he made money for Rollins. Rollins went home and said to his agents, sack everyone in Europe, sack everyone everywhere else. This is the only time I've made money touring internationally. I want a Tim Pittman in every country. So Tim started working with Rollins. So we had that link. So when Rollins band would come out, we would sometimes get on the shows. The other thing was when I went to the US in 91 for around 1991 for the first Gulf War and I was working over at the US Army Missile Command, when I was over there, I thought, you know what? We just released uh, the second album, and I kind of made a tape of Battlesick, and I sent it to Rollins and sent him a note and said, "Hey Henry, you know my name's Kim Scott, playing this band called Mark Kane. I really think you will like some of the stuff we do." Here's a tape. Supposedly, he listened to that, um, got third track in, rang Tim Pittman and said, "Do you know these guys, Mark Kane?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, no." He said, "Next time I come." Touring, I want those guys. I love these guys. Blah blah blah. And he supposedly really loved the song "Battle Sick." Right. So that started it all. And then we toured with him, and he would come out and watch us instead of warming. Or he'd warm up on side stage watching us uh, as we were playing, and we just got on really well with him. And a lot of the books John and I read, he was reading. So he's a voracious reader, as John and I were at the time, and just a whole lot of modern literature and stuff. So existential stuff. So we just kind of hit it off. And then at one point, I think. We sort of said, hey, would you ever like to produce one of our records? He said, hell yeah, just tell me and I'll be there. Oh, so. wow. He had your back from the minute he he was he listened to you. Well, he said, I want you to come to the US and destroy every band from A to Z in the <laughs> US or A to Z, as they would say in America. Yeah. He said, we'll just start with the band. He said, you guys will destroy these guys. He said, you guys are harder and harsher than anything in America right now. You're going to come home. So if you had to pick a moment from your career so far since 1984, what's the moment that you just – you know, you, you look at and go, I'm so glad that happened. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different 
great shows and certainly post Roland's kind of producing at least we we went to the next set of sh- live shows and it was like wow where, where does this crowd come from we said let's send a big, bigger crowd but for me probably one of the most enjoyable and memorable shows for me was at Adelaide University Bar mm-hmm. up on the third or fourth floor playing with Big Black 89 maybe it was very it was Big Black's very last show in the Southern Hemisphere so Albini and San Diego Durango and God I think the bass player in a minute and the drum machine it was their very last show before they headed back to the US and then they were doing one show in the US and that was it Big Black were breaking up seeing them live and hearing the impact of their sound mm-hmm. with the drum machine was just like almost life-changing in so far as that experience. And it wasn't a great sound system, but it was just unbelievable watching them. So, yeah, I think that was probably the the highlight, seeing Big Black and then becoming good friends with Albini and then Albini going and doing a couple of mixes for us when I was living in the US. We went to Chicago and he did some um, work on somewhere because this was before In Utero, I reckon. So this was before he really got a name as a producer and so forth. So, so yeah, that was pretty pretty important, I think. That's a great story. It's always good when you sort of, you know, you're at a gig or you're supporting someone and you just, you have that moment where you're just wowed by something you see on stage. Well, and and he, he started and his amp blew up or the amp that he was using blew up. <laughs> and he said, uh, and he had a bugle for some reason, like he bought a bugle with him or someone gave him a bugle. Anyway, he said, um, you know, will someone loan us an amp? And we just loaded all our gear down the four flights of stairs into our cars. So my brother goes, yeah, I got a, I got an AC30 box. So he goes, can I get that? So John ran downstairs and ran back upstairs with this AC30 box, put it on stage, and and Albini was keen because it was an AC30 because it was, you know, it was an old, yeah. old valve driven amp, and he he was very and he played the bugle. He said, I, I must announce the arrival of our new amplifier, and he started playing the bugle and stuff. <laughs> and then they got into it, and it was just great. Um, you have spoken about the, there is a chance maybe we might get another record. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We've been in the rehearsals in a couple of months of rehearsals before the accident. We were mucking around with John was bringing new riffs in and saying, "Hey, I mucked around with this." And so it's always dependent on John because um, he's the main songwriter. So when John gets a period of cathartic, wants to, to wants to write songs, um, and he's had that in recent times. So he's been bringing some stuff to the. Uh, rehearsal room so maybe at the end of these tours we'll kind of continue to rehearse because that's the thing you kind of come off a tour and you go right okay we'll see you in about a year's time and you I mean I see him socially but I don't we don't rehearse so I think if we maintain some discipline around rehearsing then we'll work on those new riffs and we're not a we don't write our songs in a fast way it's a very organic process that John controls so sometimes we'll spend an hour and a half just on one little riff and it takes a while, and sometimes John will f- finesse the hell out of stuff, which it's kind of like he writes from the inside out. Some people write globally and kind of do, you know, chorus, verse. No. Nah. If you'd listen to our records, there's probably about a minute and a half of music before any vocal yeah, comes in. Yeah, yeah. Which is the radio never liked us. We used to have to do radio edits to cut stuff out. But So would they cut the minute and a half out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they would <laughs> ask us to do a radio edit that kind of, yeah. yeah. And even Rollins used to say, man, he said, you guys have long intros. Um, he said, because he was a singer. So for him, he had to be singing in the first or second bar. Otherwise, he was yeah. standing around waiting too long. <laughs> Whereas John is a musician and he loves the concept of building up and, you know, building through a minute and a half of music. 
and then coming in, you know, the vocals are almost secondary. I mean, they're not, but yeah. So yeah, there is. I'll I'll end with this. There was a guy that wrote online. I got to see what he wrote. He wrote. He says he remembers Mark of Cain rehearsing for the record that we're talking about today for six months. Um, you guys recording rehearsing ill at ease, and he yep. said he he had um Mark of Cain for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he loved it. <laughs> and he was where was he? Was he? I don't know. He said that he lived near or, or the rehearsal studio that you guys oh, were okay. at. Or... Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, we've used different ones. Custom Music's where we go now, but um, yeah, we've used different ones over the years. But and also we used to rehearse at John's house when he lived at Bowdoin, right, in Brompton here in uh, South Australia. Just used to, you know. It was a semi-industrial area, but so I was wondering whether he lived. Yeah, he must have lived somewhere near there or something. The industrial yeah, area. Yeah. And six months of um of rehearsals for a record. Is that how long you would rehearse? Well, for? it's interesting because I reckon that record. When I look at it, and and I got asked this question previously about the evolution of our sound and records and so forth, and songs of third and fifth compared to some of the ill of these. Most most of the records, I would say, uh, Battle Sick, uh, the Unclaimed Prize, and ill of these were all road tested through live performances. So we wrote the songs and we took them out live in most cases for a year or more, if not longer, before we recorded. So, and in that process, you you fine-tune things and you kind of work out what works for you and so forth. As much as you might have heard us for six months, that was probably just general (laughs) rehearsal for live shows as well. Because nearly every song on LLDs was written before we went in. We walked in the studio and this was before Roland showed up, and we just put all the beds down and put all the, all the tracks down, and we did it in about a week because we played them so much live. Yeah, yeah. Well, the tour is kicking off in November. You've got this. Uh, you got the vinyl out. Well, it's coming out in a week's time. I think it was going to be today, wasn't it? It was going to be today. Yeah, yeah. It's got delayed. I think production issues. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. I'm sure everyone's going to jump on it. But most of all, it's good to see you fit, yep. feeling good. You don't have the bloody. What's no, it called? No frame. I'll prove that. There's no frame. <laughs> no frame. So yeah. that is that is fantastic. Thank you so much for chatting with uh, me in the Street Press podcast. I'll um I'd love to come out and see a show. No worries, Sean. We hope to see you out there. Yes, there he is, Kim Scott, the bass player of Mark of Kane, free of the frame. Good to see. Go and check them out. They've got some dates coming up at the end of this month. So let's check that tour. So it's Saturday the 25th of November in Adelaide, Wednesday the 13th in Canberra, the 15th of December in Sydney. If you're in Brizzy, it'll be the following day on the 16th of December. And then they've got a few shows in Frio, Melbourne and Hobart. They're all happening in January and they are bringing along special guests, pigs, 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 pigs. That is the band name. I'm not shitting yet. Go check them out. (laughs) All right, it's time for this. Yes, this is the part of the show. You can write on in. Go to the streetpresspodcast.com forward slash letters. There is also a link in the show notes right now. You click on that button, it will take you to a little section where you can write a letter into the show. I love to hear from people. This one's from Mr. Leggett. He says, podcast never disappoints. Keep killing it, mate. With you guys doing the gig with you and I, I would love to hear a special gig day pod with TRK. Lion Island and UMI, similar to the old recovery interviews at Big Day Out. Hmm, it's not a bad idea. Get all the bands together and have a chat. Obviously, he's talking about the gig coming up at Everglades in Woi The Ritzy Kids are on the bill. Lion Island will jump on after us, and then UMI will hit the stage. I would love to get Tim Rogers on the show. We've obviously had Bob on, who plays in Lion Island, but uh, not a bad idea. 
I might uh, I might see what I can do there. If you're enjoying what I'm doing, if you like this podcast, if you want to help out, there are a few ways you can do it. Obviously, all the uh, the typical ways that podcast hosts tell you to do. Uh, you can just smash the five star rating on Spotify. That might help me in the rankings. But if you want to uh, chip in, you can go to the streetpresspodcast.com. And you can join our membership. You can get some discounts off merch. You'll get a mug. You'll get a few little cool things. But your heart will be warm because you're helping me out. It's $4 a month uh, if you'd like to join. So go to thestreetpresspodcast.com. And as for the band news, uh, yeah, just got that gig with you and I coming up. That'll be a cool show. That is November 18 at the Everglades Warway. And we're also going to play an acoustic show, I think it's the next weekend or the weekend after that, at uh, Wombrel Surf Club. Andrew and I are going to do a really special acoustic set on a Sunday Arvo there. There's going to be Cocktails and Santa. So if you want to get along to that, check it out. Go to theritzykids.com. Don't forget, I want your ears here next week. We're going to do it all again. Someone else on from the music industry. Have a nice week. Until then, ta-da. Ta-da.